Bob Murphy Show, episode 236. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today I'm going to be going through some clips of a podcast episode that John Stewart hosted. So John Stewart now has his own podcast called The Problem with John Stewart. And he recently had on Thomas Honig, I think I'm pronouncing the guy's name right, who is the former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. And so Honig had famously been an inflation hawk voting against the rest of the FOMC like after the financial crisis. And now with inflation rearing its ugly head, Honig looks like maybe he was onto something. And so that's kind of the context of John Stewart having him on the show. And as we'll see in the clips I played, I think John Stewart asks very reasonable questions and Honig's answers sometimes are not very illuminating. And so I'll go through all that. So I just think it, this episode is, I think, a good opportunity for me to sort of just go over some basics in terms of money and banking and then what's going on with the Federal Reserve and just a, a lot of related issues like that with the bailouts and so on. So this is kind of a uh, nuts and bolts episode where I'm not going to be really making any zingers so much, but just teaching you guys how this stuff works, going over some concepts. But I do think in case you're like, oh, well, gee, I already know how open market operations work. I'm going to be like a one level higher than what you would get in a standard economics class, let's say, in college. Okay, so before I start playing clips, though, from the podcast, the interview that John Stewart conducted, I think I need to do a quick exercise in explaining how it is that a commercial bank engages in fractional reserve banking in order to earn interest income. And this will come in useful later in the episode for you to have this background information. And I think it's useful just in its own right. But I, I think it'll be useful later. And so you say, well, why don't you wait, Bob, and explain this right before you need to use it? Because it's a little bit complex. And I think we should do it right now. You've had your coffee, perhaps. And let me do it right now while you're still alert. The further we get into the episode, I think it'll be harder to bring this up. So I don't want to scare you off. This isn't going to be incredibly complicated or anything like that, but it will require you to pay attention and there are some numbers involved. But with all that said, let's go ahead and go through this part quickly and then I'll dive into the actual clips from John Stewart. So what I want to explain here is the actual mechanics and the accounting for when a commercial bank engages in fraction reserve banking and how does it earn interest income. And so for our purposes in this I think it's actually conceptually a lot easier if we imagine that the economy is on a gold standard. And in fact, not just a gold standard where people use government-issued paper that can be redeemed for gold, but let's assume there's actual gold coins 
circulating and that's what people pay to merchants and stuff when they walk into the stores or that's one method of payment. So when you pay for something in cash in this economy that we're imagining, people are actually clunking down gold coins on the countertop, okay? So in that context then, let's say there's a a banker and he says, hey, you don't want to be walking around with lots of gold coins in your pocket because you could get mugged or something, right? And, and at some point, you know, depending on how big your purchases are going to be, it's heavy if you're carrying around too much gold. So I will provide the service of storing your gold for you. So you go ahead and you deposit your gold coins with me. I put them in my very safe vault. I've got guards. I've got insurance in case there's a fire or a break-in. So your gold is safe with me. And then I'll give you these paper notes that are issued by my bank. They're very hard to counterfeit. You know, there's all kinds of special ink that I use and there's fancy designs and stuff. It would be hard for someone to make a note that the community wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the real thing and the counterfeit. And the notes, you know, each note says the bearer of this note can turn it into my bank and get redeemed one gold coin. All right. So somebody comes in and deposits 15 gold coins. I put it in the vault and then I give them 15 of these pieces of paper that are good for instant redemption. Turn into any of the branches of my bank in town and you will get one gold coin for every one of these paper notes that you have. All right. And, and that's what we do. And, you know, maybe people pay me a slight fee for the storage services that I'm providing. Okay. Or who knows? We'll get into that later. It actually turns out they won't have to once I start lending out. But if, if in the beginning, I am truly just acting like as a warehouse, just as a, a provider of convenience services that, hey, I store your money here so you don't got to lug it around with you. And I'm giving you just claim tickets, redemption tickets, the way like a code check would work. In that scenario, why would I do that as the banker? Well, you must be paying me somehow. So there'd have to be some arrangement to make it worth my while to provide those services. Okay, so that's how it works. So time passes. Let's say I've got the community in total has deposited a thousand gold coins with me, you know, the actual yellow discs, these gold coins, and I put them in my vaults and I've issued now a thousand of these notes that are in the hands of the public, my customers, my depositors, and, you know, they're carrying it around instead of them, some guy instead of carrying around eight gold coins, he's carrying around eight of these notes, which are much more discreet and easier to transport. Okay. And two, you know, just it facilitates transactions. It's easier at the store or whatever, just to hand over some notes. Okay. So what I notice as the banker is that in any given week, very few of those notes get presented to me for redemption. And then even if they do, soon enough, eventually people bring gold coins back in to redeposit in the vault and I give them a note back. So it fluctuates. It's not that it's always perfectly canceling out on any day-to-day period. And so maybe during the course of a typical week, if I look at the stockpile of gold coins in my vault, they have a peak of a thousand, but then they might drift downward and maybe they get as low as 800, depending on you know what's going on that week. If it's a busy holiday season or so there's some unusual thing, you know, maybe it gets as low as 800, but typically it probably doesn't even go below 900. But I watch it for several months and the lowest I ever see it, I'm just making numbers up, of course, in this hypothetical, the lowest I ever see it is 802. The, my, you know, the thousand, if everybody leaves it on deposit, the, the max is a thousand and it bounces around. And like I say, the lowest I've ever seen it get 
over a three-month period is it gets down to 802. So what do I do after a while? As I say, you know, this is kind of silly for me just to sit here and have all these gold coins sitting uselessly in the vault doing nothing for me. I mean, yeah, maybe I'm charging people a slight fee for the convenience. And maybe when you come in, if you deposit 10 gold coins and I give you the 10 notes, maybe you got to make a side payment to me at that point, some small amount, like you got to pay me a silver coin or something to compensate me. But other than that, I'm not really making too much. I got a thousand gold coins just sitting there. And so I have a good idea that, hey, why don't I lend out some of them? So in this example, maybe I'll lend out 500 for a one-year one year loans. And the deal is I say to each borrower here, you're going to borrow a certain amount of gold coins from me and I'm going to charge you a 10% rate of interest. So if I give you 10 gold coins right now, in 12 months time, you got to give me 10 gold coins back plus an 11th is the interest payment. All right? And I do that and I lend out 500 total of these gold coins. So now instead of having 1,000 coins in the vault, it goes down to 500. I've lent out half of them. Now notice, I should still be all right. As long as there's not any drastic change in the commercial activity in this town, I'm fine. Because what we said last time, the most people ever turned in those notes to get the actual gold coins was just shy of 200. And so I've still got 500 coins in the vault backing up the thousand notes that are outstanding. And so I should be fine, right? So now I could get caught with my pants down if for some reason a rumor breaks out and the community gets spooked and they all decide to turn in their notes, well, then I'm dead in the water because I, you know, there's a thousand notes circulating that say the bearer of this note can redeem it immediately for one gold coin. And so now if more than 500 people try to do that, I'm going to run out of gold coins. But I'm just going to take a chance and hope that doesn't happen. All right. And so now let's suppose I'm fine and there isn't a bank run. A year passes and the people turn back in, they pay off their loans. All right. So I've lent out 500. Everybody pays back the 500 in principle plus the 10% interest. So that's 50 gold coins. So I get paid back 550. So now I put the 500 back in the vault. So now I'm back up to 1,000. And that 50 extra gold coins that I got paid as interest income is mine free and clear. So that's genuine income in terms of the accounting. And then I can go spend that however I want. It's not that anything can come back to bite me if I spend that 50. All right, so that's how we're... In contrast, suppose I just took the 500 and spent some of it. You know, suppose I just, you know, when I had a thousand in there, suppose I just took out 50 and went and spent it saying, ah, no one's going to come to, I mean, I could do that for a while and maybe never get caught. But the more I did that, the more vulnerable I would be, right? Because then there would be those outstanding tickets that people are holding and the amount of gold coins that I have backing those up would shrink every time I went and spent some on myself. In contrast, when I lend out the sort of excess that I have in my vault, and then as long as my loans are good and I don't, you know, lend it on a project that the person defaults, as long as I get the principal back, then any interest income I get is mine free and clear. There are no tickets floating around corresponding to those 50 gold coins I got in interest. So I can go ahead and spend those. And it's not that therefore there are people now in the community with notes that I've issued that aren't backed up by anything in the vault. That's not the case if I'm just spending the interest income. Okay, so that's how that works. Now let me throw another twist. In that example, 
when I'm walking you through starting from scratch, I think it's just easier conceptually if you imagine the people put the thousand gold coins in the vault, they get the thousand notes, each one saying this entitles the bearer to one gold coin. And then when I go to make the loans, I take the 500 gold coins and directly give those to the borrowers. But in reality, I would just issue notes, right? Because that's what people get from my bank and they go and spend the notes in the community. So I don't even have to literally take the gold coins out of the vault physically when I want to lend out 500 coins worth of what's sitting in the vault. When people come and borrow from me at a 10% interest rate for a year, you know, someone says, yeah, I'd like to borrow three gold coins, please. I don't have to go fetch three gold coins from the vault. Instead, I can just take my notes and say, here you go, here's three of them. And then you hear, you also sign this contract with me that says you owe me 3.3 gold coins a year from now. And then I give them my, my three notes, you know, the official looking things that are issued by my bank that are hard to counterfeit and so on. Because as we've stipulated in this community, everybody trusts me. I have a reputation that, hey, anytime somebody turns in one of these notes, they get their gold coin, no questions asked, no delay. So the merchants all accept these notes on par with gold coins. If something costs eight gold coins in their shop, you can pay with eight actual physical gold coins or you can give them eight of my notes and the merchant's fine with it because the merchant has learned and practiced. No, any amount of these notes that I turn over to that banker, he's good for it. He always gives me the gold coins if I want. Okay, so what I'm saying is in practice, probably when I go to lend out some of the gold coins in my vault, I just write up extra notes. And so in the period right after I do that, instead of there being a thousand notes circulating in the hands of the public corresponding to the thousand gold coins in my vault, right after I make these loans, there's 1,500 of these notes floating around. Now, what happens when I do that, the members of my bank on average, are spending more on goods and services from the community from people who belong to other banks than vice versa, right after I all of a sudden just inject 500 more notes into the hands of my clients. And so let's say at the end of every week, I and the other bankers settle up with each other. And so they say, ah, our clients have turned it. So, so here's what happens. When my client goes to a bank or sorry, a store and buys something that's eight gold coins and they plunk down eight notes, you know, issued by my bank, that merchant takes it at par. But unless that merchant is a client of mine, what they're going to do is, you know, let's say they belong to a different bank. They're going to go and turn those notes into their own bank. And then their bank will credit their checking account with the equivalent of eight gold ounces. But then that bank is not going to sit there and hold on to my paper notes. Instead, they will present them to me and say, here, give us the eight gold coins. We want to put them in our vault to correspond to the increment of eight gold coins that we just credited to our customer's checking account balance. All right. Now, in practice, there's lots of customers doing this. You know, and that bank's customers are buying things from my customers. And so what my customers are giving me deposits of notes issued by other banks. So at the end, it's not that we have 800 gold coins going from my bank over to, to Joe's bank. And then Joe's sending me 700 gold coins. That would be stupid. Instead, we just take our notes and compare, cancel out most of them, and then just whatever the net difference is, that's what gets transferred over, right? So just 100 gold coins in that example would flow from one bank to the other rather than 800 and then 700 going the opposite way. 
right? So we have clearinghouse operations. Okay, so now that you kind of see the mechanics of that, what happens is in the immediate wake of me all of a sudden injecting 500 more of my notes into the hands of my clients, other things equal, they're going to be spending a lot more now on the goods and services offered by clients of other banks than vice versa. And so on net, when these clearing operations occur, probably I'm going to owe more to other banks than I would have before. So by me writing up 500 additional notes and lending them out to the community in the next few weeks, I'm going to see an uptick in notes presented to me by other banks saying, you know, we're settling up here and on net you owe us gold coins. And so there will be a draw on my vaults. All right. So it's in practice, it could be the same thing. Instead of me literally just when people borrow money from me, going and taking the gold coins out, even if I just write the notes, soon enough, those notes are going to get presented to me. So that's why I can't just be crazy and lend out 6,000 notes because those are going to show up for redemption when, when they get spent and the other bankers present them to me and I don't have 6,000 gold coins in the vault. So that'd be crazy for me to do that. That's why you got to be careful. Okay, so that's how that works. Now, last thing I'll mention is just do the accounting from my point of view as a banker. When someone... So start in the original situation where people have put a thousand gold coins on deposit and I've given them these notes. So in terms of my balance sheet, the thousand gold coins sitting in the vault are assets. And then on my liability side, those notes that I've issued are a thousand gold coins worth of liabilities. Okay. So in that example, if I don't tell you anything else, I have zero equity in this operation. So really when I start my bank, I would put my, some of my own gold coins into the vault to get things up and running. All right. So that's how that works. Now, what if I lend out 500 of those gold coins, what happens? And so people are borrowing them from me. And so the loans are now the assets. And I still have those thousand liabilities, right? So what has happened originally, like I said, there was a thousand gold coins. Those were the assets. And then a thousand notes outstanding. Those are the liabilities. If I take the 500 gold coins and literally hand them over to borrowers in exchange for them signing a contract saying they owe me that plus 10% in a year, at the moment of the loans, take a snapshot of my balance sheet. I now only have 500 coins in the vault. So my assets there have gone down, but now I have loans, the market value of which right now in present terms is 500 gold coins. And then I still have the thousand in notes issued, right? So that's the way to think of it that way. If I instead handed out more notes, the way the balance sheet would look is I would, and suppose we take the snapshot, the, the moment after I lend out those 500 new notes that aren't backed up by anything in the vault, been, you know, before they get spent and turned back into me for redemption. And that, you know, we take that quick snapshot. Now, in this scenario, my asset side of my balance sheet says a thousand gold coins in the vault and 500 ounces worth or gold coins worth of loans. So my assets are 1,500. And then the liability side, it's the original thousand notes that I issued when people deposited their coins plus the 500 in notes that I issued in terms of the uh, fractional reserve lending. Okay, so it is that 
latter part that I want to focus on now, since that's the more standard one. So what just happened is my assets and liabilities went up by 500 gold coins just by the act of me making those loans. And so if you had a measure of the money supply in this community and you included, and this would be included in M1 and M2, if you know what those terms are, checking account balances and banknotes or you know demand deposits with banks, those count as part of the money supply. So the money supply is not affected if you just turn in your gold coins to me and I give you a note, right? So in that original scenario where, you, where I got a thousand gold coins in the vault and I've handed a thousand notes over, the public has just changed the form of the money. There's still just a thousand gold coins in terms of M1. But now if I lend 500, at this point, the money stock has gone up, or at least M1 has gone up by 500 gold coins worth. And that's true whether I physically lend out the gold coins or issue notes. If I physically lend out the gold coins, the way to see it is the public is still walking around with a thousand notes in their pockets. And now there's 500 gold coins in the hands of the public. So it's 1500. Or if I just issue the notes and the thousand still stays in the vault, the thousand actual coins, now the way to see it is the public is walking around with 1500 gold coin notes in their pockets. Okay. So that's the sense in which commercial banks, if they engage in fractional reserve banking, can increase the money stock just through the act of making loans. So in this community, prices quoted in gold would go up, other things equal, just as if miners had found 500 coins worth of new gold and they got you know hammered into coins and distributed. Hey, everybody, just your usual reminder, if you like what you're hearing here on the show, please consider contributing. Any amount helps and a recurring monthly contribution is the best of all. For more details and to see the special perks you can get, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. Okay, so why don't we move on now that I've talked about that. Let's play this first clip from Jon Stewart talking to Honig where he's going to raise the interesting question of the bailouts of the big banks and other institutions during the, you know, after the collapse of the housing market. And, you know, why did they just directly bail out the homeowners? So if I'm looking at this from a layman's perspective, if I'm a homeowner who in the crisis suddenly has a mortgage that's underwater, and I'm not even saying to them, forgive my mortgage, but bring it back to balance. Right. And they say no. Right. What would be the justification for not providing that? If you're providing that backstop for large financial institutions, why not provide it for Americans in need? The answer is that I think the central bank has begun to provide it for Americans in need. That's what they COVID did during really, the pandemic. Correct. And that's a crisis moment. But let me go back to 2008. The Fed comes in. They say, we're in a crisis. Where's Rumpelstiltskin? We're going to take the straw. We're going to spin it into gold. And we're going to give it to the big boys to cover their losses on these bundles. My question is, that immediately favors these banks so homeowners lose their homes. Yes. Why didn't they print money and bring those mortgages to sea level? Because doesn't that immediately then solve your problem? And you've done it for a fraction of the price and you've saved people 
from losing their homes. Right. Right. Uh, very good point. <laughs> I, I would, first of all, tell you that what you described yes. is not what was intended for the Federal Reserve, and that is to bail out companies that were bust. Okay. Okay? okay. They were supposed to be solvent, and we have a temporary liquidity problem when you provide capital. Mm -hmm. That's why the issue of too big to fail is a very real issue. Right. Because if they're too big to fail, they can borrow more money at discounted rates. Right. People know they're going to get their money back. They take these risks. They engage in this activity. And then the crisis comes, and the Fed does, in fact, bail them out. That's wrong. That's not how it's supposed to work. Okay. So very understandable question. And I think, you know, Honing's answer was a, a very central banker-esque. So I think the real reason, and, you know, you suspect John Stewart thinks this too. And by the way, the reason I found this episode wasn't that I directly heard this one. It's that I heard John Stewart talking to Stephanie Kelton and Rowan Gray of MMT fame. And uh, they were upset with this interview, the one that you and I heard folks are listening to. And and that's how I realized, oh, I didn't know John Stewart had interviewed Honing. And so I can understand their frustration. So obviously I don't take Kelton and Rowan's conclusions or prescriptions, but I'm saying by the time John's talking to them, they're all very cynical about, oh yeah, the reason the Fed did what it did was to bail out the big boys and leave everybody else struggling and getting foreclosed upon. When, again, if the, just to make sure you caught what John Stewart's question was, is, wait a minute, we were told that, oh, because of the collapse in the housing market that threatened all these big financial institutions, you know, who now weren't going to get their mortgage payments and that threatened the market value of these mortgage-backed securities. So now all these big firms holding mortgage-backed securities and related derivative assets were in serious trouble. And so the Fed came in and sort of propped up the market and mortgage-backed securities and you know, similar assets in order to stem the systemic collapse. And so Stewart's point was, given how much the Fed spent doing this, or the amounts it loaned, technically, couldn't the Fed have just, with the same dollar outlay, directly rescued all the homeowners who were underwater? And then if the ultimate reason for why these mortgage-backed securities were in trouble was that home values had dropped, and so therefore people were underwater, couldn't the Fed just have directly bailed out the homeowners? And then that would not only be, you'd think, more just that if the Fed's going to help people, it should be the struggling people getting kicked out of their homes, not these billion-dollar-plus money management firms, but also doesn't that solve the problem? And by the way, folks, I have seen some figures. It depends how you calculate it. So I, I didn't go back and try to do it again. So this might be off. But I think given how much the Fed spent on quantitative easing, like if you looked at the numbers, the outlays, and spent might not be the right word. I mean, it is the right word if like to say if I went and bought stocks, I spent money, but it's not consumption. So given how much the Fed created and to acquire mortgage-backed securities, put it that way, and certainly it helps too if you throw in what they had to spend in order to acquire all the treasuries that they did during the rounds of QE. What the real issue is, it's not that they could have gone and bought all the outstanding mortgages. Like, I don't think those numbers were close. But if you say, well, no, really, it's not that they had to go like buy all the houses in America. 
It's just they had to go in for how much everybody was upside down or underwater, right? The mismatch. So if somebody owed 300000 on their mortgage, but their home had fallen in value to only 250000 well, that person really only needs 50000 It's not that the whole 300000 mortgage needs to get gobbled up by the Fed, right? And so there, the numbers were closer. And I did see some back-of-the-envelope calculations saying, maybe you've not totally covered it, but certainly could have done a lot. Certainly could have erased the gap enough such that a lot of homeowners would have stayed in their houses and kept making their payments rather than just saying, wow, I'm 30% underwater. This is crazy. And just you know, mail the keys back to the bank or something and, and move out. Right. So that was the idea. And that's what Stuart's asking about. So here, what I'll do is I'll just kind of explain some of the principles involved. because I think that's, that'll be a useful service for you folks. Honing in his answer, you know, he's getting at the distinction saying, well, you know, the Fed's really not supposed to be bailing people out per se. It's just supposed to be a lender of last resort. And he, you know, he cites this difference between being illiquid versus insolvent. So let me just kind of walk through some of those issues so you at least understand what Honig's answer was trying to get at. So strictly speaking, a bank is not going to just give money to people. Right. And that's why I kept catching myself. It's not so much that the Fed just spent money. I mean, it did spend money in the sense that any flow of dollars could be construed as a purchase. Just like if you go purchase bonds, yeah, you're spending money. But on the other hand, you could say, well, no, I'm investing or I'm lending if you're using that as opposed to spending it. Like if you're thinking of spending as buying ice cream. Okay. So that's the reason I was catching myself. So strictly speaking, the central bank can't just give money to people in terms of its operations. All it can do is buy assets or lend money, the discount window or something. But even there, technically, it's like buying an IOU from a borrower, right? And so that's what Honing was getting at. And, and there's a there's distinction between, or put it this way, what the Fed is supposed to do acting as lender of last resort. And this is like, this goes back to like the classical conception of central banks in the 1800s is that they're supposed to be providing liquidity. And so the idea is if you've got a firm that's insolvent, right, that's bankrupt, where its assets are less than its liabilities, the central bank's not supposed to rescue that firm. Let that firm go under. What the central bank is supposed to do acting as a lender of last resort, is to help firms that are solvent but illiquid get through the liquidity crisis and come out the other end because they're, they're fundamentally sound. Their assets are worth more than their liabilities. That's why they're solvent. It's just they have a cash flow problem, right? And so the, just to illustrate that distinction, this actually happened to me once after the housing bubble collapsed. I stupidly bought a house in 2006, partly because I was trying to show my new employer at the time that I was serious about staying with the firm. And I quit seven months later or something. So I was wrong on both counts. But in any event, I was stuck with a house that I had bought at the peak. And, you know, and I was a consultant. And so my, it's not that I had a nine to five job, you know, later on that just paid me a given amount every month and I could bank on that. Instead, I would do projects and, you know, so my, my revenue would come in, in in lumps. And, you know, some months I would have a ton of money coming in and then other months would be drier. And so it just, I got, I was in this position where on paper, in terms of the accounting, my income was quite good, right? That I had a lot of clients lined up who were 
going to give me a lot of money for these projects I was going to do. And if you calculated, well, how many of my hours will it take to do these projects? I was making a great hourly rate and everything. The problem was though, that I owed the mortgage payment on my house and that money hadn't come in the door yet. You know, so I, there, my income was fine. My, you know, I was solvent in terms of my assets and liabilities. If you took the present value of those future cash flows coming from those clients, that was fine. You know, or if you said over the next six months, how much money do I have coming in and how much do I have going on in terms of my bills, my liabilities, I was fine. I had a lot more coming in than was going out. But in terms of this month right now, I owed people more money than I had money coming in the door, than people owed me money. And so that's the distinction between, you know, being illiquid versus insolvent. I was solvent, but illiquid. So I needed a loan. And uh, the reason I'm chuckling is because when I was explaining that to the guy, you know, at the bank who was wondering, hey, how come you fell behind on your mortgage? You know, I explained to him that no, my income's fine. It's just that and I went to, and he was just like, well, <laughs> if you're telling me you can't pay us this month, I, I really don't know why you're saying your income's fine. It's like, okay. And the guy works for a bank. Anyway, so that was the classical function of central banks. And that's why Walter Badgett, I think that's how you pronounce his name. So in case you've just seen in print, his name looks like bag of hole or bag of hot, right? It's B-A-G-E-H-O-T. And he had a famous dictum saying, you know, in times of a liquidity crunch, lend to solid firms at a high rate of discount. All right, I'm paraphrasing, but something like that. So his point was, yeah, what the central bank is supposed to do when there's a crisis, go ahead and provide liquidity to make sure firms don't go under just because they have a cash crunch. So go ahead and lend them money so they can get through the crunch, but do it at a high interest rate, right? And, and that's at a penalty rate even. And the reason is to separate the wheat from the chaff, right? That a firm that is a fundamentally sound, their assets are more than their liabilities and they just they have a cash flow problem, they would be willing and able to pay a high rate of interest for a short-term loan just to get through the storm. Whereas a firm that's fundamentally unsound is like, nah, this right now, realistically, our liabilities are higher than our assets. You know, it's not, they're not going to go borrow money at, 10% because no, that's just, you know, we're a sinking ship that's just going to make it worse. Right? That's not going to fix the problem. Right? Whereas if the central bank's handing out money at 0.25%, maybe these firms that really ought to just die will go ahead and load up on more debt because it's so cheap and just, you know, throw a Hail Mary and say, hey, things might turn around six months. Let's go ahead and borrow a few hundred million dollars. All right. So that's the idea. So even though that's the classical conception, so that's what Honing is alluding to. When the central bank lends freely, but at a very low rate of discount, it kind of defeats the purpose. And that distinction between providing liquidity versus providing equity or injecting capital falls away. Right? And so let me just explain what I mean by that. So you've got some hedge fund that's uh, sitting on mortgage-backed securities, that's sitting on a billion dollars of mortgage-backed securities before the crisis hits. Oh, the crisis hits. And now because there's panic in the markets, those mortgage-backed securities drop in value down to 600 million, right? So they drop 40%. So if the central bank now comes in and buys those mortgage-backed securities for 900 million, is that really just injecting liquidity versus injecting equity? Because they've just now, by doing that, boosted the market price of those assets from 600 million up to 900 million. So yes, 
you could say, oh, all they're really doing is buying some assets and just doing asset swaps, just transforming the Fed's balance sheet in terms of the composition. Or you could say, you know, they're, oh, they're just injecting liquidity into the system because now when they buy $900 million worth of bonds, $900 million new dollars in base money is created. You say, oh, they're just injecting liquidity. They're not, you know, they're not just giving out money to the banks. No, they're buying assets. It's just an asset swap. But again, in the example I cited, if those assets would have been worth $600 million absent the Fed's action, and now the Fed's coming in and paying $900 million for them, there's a very real sense in which the Fed just gave $300 million to that company, to its shareholders, right? So again, my point is when the Fed comes in, I mean, arguably, you could say this is true no matter what the central bank does, just its very existence is distortionary. But I'm just saying clearly when they're doing stuff and buying assets, the sole purpose of which is to prop up their price. And if they're lending out money at virtually 0%, then this distinction between, oh, the Fed's just injecting liquidity or making loans versus, oh, the Fed's bailing people out, that distinction kind of falls away, even though that's what Honing was relying on. So, I mean, what, in terms of the individual homeowner, it'd be like someone's underwater, their mortgage is 300,000 and the, the value of the house has fallen to 270. So they're underwater by 30,000. And then the Fed buying a, a note that the person issues for $30,000 and, you know, and having is it like a 0.25% interest rate on the note over five years or something. And so you could say, oh, the Fed's just lending money to that guy. He's not bailing, but again, in such generous terms, you know, there is a sense in which the Fed is handing money implicitly to that person. You say it's not the full 30000 if you want, but certainly the difference between the market rate of interest that that person would have had to pay on the note versus what the Fed's charging. All right, so that's what's going on in that clip. Let's now turn to what I think was an even more interesting one. A little bit later, this was the exchange they had. So let me maybe formulate it this way. There's a certain orthodoxy to how we have to get out of it, Right. Right. A slow raising of interest rates, a tightening of monetary policy. Maybe they burn off some of the money. Should there be a, a rethinking of that orthodoxy? And the reason why I ask it is you talked about debt, right? Right. To me, and clearly I'm a layman and don't understand the intricacies of it, it feels made up that this monetary policy feels like a delusion of some sort. And why couldn't they just cancel that debt and have the country carry less and then tighten the policy? If you raise interest rates on big debt, right, then we've got all this pressure on making those payments. And why not have the Fed cancel the debt and then raise interest rates to reset the playing field? Well, the difficulty with that is, of Mm -hmm. course, uh, this is debt owed by the government. But they made the money. Well, they would, in fact, be declaring bankruptcy, wouldn't they? Because you have this debt, and you're just going to say, I don't owe it anymore. <laughs> who, who do we owe it to? Like, when they say the United States has $20 trillion of debt, where, where would that be distributed to? Uh, it be in commercial banks. It would be in China. It would okay. be in Europe. It would be in different countries around the world. Uh, and so... You owe this money throughout the world. You can't just stop paying on the debt. 
Couldn't you just quantitative ease our debt? What's the difference of making that money available to Goldman Sachs as it is to making that money available to China? Only one would lessen our debt. So you confiscate it from Goldman Sachs? Sure. They're fine. Well, but that means you're defaulting on your debt, just like anyone else. In other words, you just print that money and pay debt. If this is money that we've created out of thin air anyway, what's to stop us from creating 10, you know, I I used to make fun of Paul Krugman for his idea of a trillion dollar coin, you know, and now- I feel, I feel myself saying, hey, man, let's just get $10 trillion coins, right. give one to China, one to Europe. Are we square? Good. And then we start again because this whole thing seems manufactured. Okay, who receives the money? Uh, all the people that own the debt of the United States. So that money would be received by China, by Europe, uh, and all, all the debt holders. Okay, all, all you're doing there is changing one debt for another. Because the printing of the money is a liability, is a debt of the Federal Reserve System. That dollar, that liability that the Fed created, it's now owed to China. No, we give it to, what I'm saying is we're giving it to them now and saying, we don't owe you that anymore. Here it is. Yeah, but they have, what do they have? They have a trillion dollars. A trillion dollars of Fed liabilities. Of money. Money that we printed, yeah. Right. And that's a liability of the Federal Reserve. That's and then they, and, and then they forgive themselves. And they oh, just and they, oh, then they just say, You're you're okay. We like you. Good luck. <laughs> I don't I don't think China's <laughs> in the business of doing us any favors right now. And I don't think Europe is either. All right. So again, very interesting stuff. And I will link so he talks about John Stewart eventually talks to Honig about how, hey, I used to make fun of Paul Krugman for this platinum coin idea. And now I'm thinking maybe it's a good idea. So I'll link to that because that was one of my favorite daily show clips of all time where John Stewart was making fun of Paul Krugman. Or originally what happened is John Stewart was making fun of the platinum coin idea, the trillion dollar platinum coin, in case you guys don't remember that. It was during the Obama years. That was like when the debt ceiling stuff was an issue and the Republicans were looking like they weren't going to blink and raise the debt ceiling. Some people, some of Obama's lawyers and whatever, stumbled on this idea. I think some outside academic recommended it. And then Obama's team was looking at it seriously to say, well, the Constitution gives the government the authority to coin money. So why don't you just take a bit of platinum, put it in a coin and just stamp on it one trillion U.S. dollars and it's legal tender and then go deposit it at the Fed. And there you go. And so now we get around the debt ceiling. Right. And people were seriously debating both the legality and the economic wisdom of this idea. And Krugman had come out in favor of, hey, let's do it. Screw you, Republicans. And so John Stewart at the time mocked that. And then Paul Krugman got all, <laughs> he's really hurting his brand by, you know, just saying this is, this is dumb. And then John Stewart's response to Krugman was, was awesome. So I'll link to that, folks. This Again, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 236 if you want to see these links. So I'll link to John Stewart's response to Krugman. It was great. But now John Stewart is saying, gee, maybe, maybe Krugman had a point. So, and, and this is kind of what led into John Stewart having Stephanie Kelton and Rowan Gray on, where unfortunately Stewart seemed to be getting seduced by the dark side of MMT. So as far as, you know, what's Honing talking about here, I think his answer, so you, you could hear it where what Stewart is saying made perfect sense. It wasn't just that he was, you know, some simpleton layperson and didn't see the complaint. No, what John Stewart was saying made perfect sense. And Honig 
you know, we'll, we'll take him as word and assume he was being authentic and sincere. And just because he's just was a central banker, lost touch with reality and got lost in his uh, jargon. But he he was kind of missing the point. He misunderstood what John was saying, especially the part where, you know, John said, yeah, so we just forgive it. And then he was like, oh, well, good luck doing that. Honing thought Stewart was saying, like, we cancel those dollars so they're no longer legal tender. Or something. No, that's not what Stewart was saying. He's saying right now, if China's sitting on a trillion dollars worth of treasuries, why doesn't the Fed create a trillion dollars in legal tender money, buy the trillion dollars of debt from China, give them the, the dollars, and then just rip up those treasuries? And Honing's response wasn't very satisfactory. He was just saying, well, he was trying to like argue it would be a wash. Well, I mean, you just exchange one one asset for another, one liability for another. So what's the difference? And there's be a huge difference there. And this is what Stewart understood, that if the Chinese government is sitting on a trillion dollars worth of U.S. treasuries, that means the U.S. government owes them the trillion plus the interest payments that they have to get through taxation or you know rolling it over. And that's going to be painful. But in contrast, if the Fed just creates a trillion dollars and hands it over them and then wipes out those treasuries, now it looks like the national debt just went down. So the real rub here, and that's why I'm saying it's surprising to me, you know, honing, I think, just wasn't transparent here, is the actual answer is that, oh, by doing that, you've, yeah, I mean, honing's got a point, you've just transferred things, but it's not that, oh, it's the liabilities of the U.S. government because since 1971, the Federal Reserve no longer has to redeem anything for fiat dollars, right? And this is why, folks, at the beginning of this episode, I, I slowly walked through that example of, of a banker making loans that you can see how this is why Honing thinks this way. So even right now on the Fed's balance sheet, outstanding dollars are listed, they're carried as liabilities, right? Because those are notes, they're Federal Reserve notes. And back in the day when you could turn in $35 US dollars in currency and get an ounce of gold, or even further back, was $20.67, it made sense that you know those outstanding notes were liabilities of the central bank. Just like, you know, in the example I walked you through at the beginning of this episode, the notes that I as the banker issued were liabilities to me because somebody could turn them, present them, and then I had to go find a gold coin in the vault or I was in trouble. I was in breach of contract. So that's why they were liabilities. But since 1971, even though on the books, those dollars are still technically liabilities of the Fed, what does that even mean? If someone goes up to the Fed and gives them a $20 bill, the Fed doesn't owe them gold. They could say, what do you want? Two tens, four fives, 20 singles, right? So that doesn't chafe the Fed in any way. There, there's no danger of a bank run on the Fed at this point where people turn in their dollars for what? More dollars? Dollars of different denominations, right? So there's no threat. So in terms of the accounting, the way they, the central bank runs its books, yes, dollars are still liabilities, but in a practical sense, no, they're not liabilities anymore. And that's why there's no limits on quantitative easing except... The Fed doesn't want to push too hard because there might be too much inflation, price inflation. Okay, but so does that mean now it's costless? And, and this is kind of where the MMT people come in. Like, so yeah, right. There's nothing stopping them. So why would you go ahead and do it? And the ultimate answer is, well, because economically, just because now the Fed is no longer tied down by the gold standard, that doesn't mean economically we've abolished scarcity. So it's still the case that 
if, say, the federal government runs a huge deficit that's financed by monetary expansion by the Fed, it's still the case that the U.S. government is siphoning real resources away from the rest of society to its own ends and that that makes everybody else poor. But now how does that manifest itself if they're not taxing us to pay for whatever their tanks and whatever? There's still got to be something to give, right? There's still rubber and glass and iron and steel and whatever that's going into the tanks that aren't available for other goods and services. And so the way it manifests itself, if it's through inflationary finance, is that prices rise, right? And so in the example with China, the mere fact that the U.S. government runs a deficit and China finances it by, you know, Chinese saving income and then buying treasuries, and that helps finance U.S. profligacy, that per se is not inflationary. That does not, other things equal, make prices quoted in dollars rise. And, and partly it's because not where the Chinese then, you know, down the road, when, when the U.S. government has to pay them the trillion plus interest, it just taxes the you know, U.S. taxpayers a trillion dollars, hands it over the Chinese, right? So that it's not that there's more dollars in circulation because the U.S. government ran a budget deficit per se. Now, to the extent that the Fed monetizes it, then that's a different story, but it's not the deficit per se. It's the Fed monetizing it. Okay, but if we do what John Stewart recommended, and now the Fed just says, oh, let's create a trillion dollars in actual money, hand it to the Chinese, take the trillion in treasury debt and destroy it. Well, now the Chinese are sitting on a trillion extra dollars. Other people's money balances in dollars haven't gone down. So now the world has a trillion extra dollars in U.S. money. And so, you know, what are the Chinese going to do with it? They're going to spend it. I mean, they might not spend it on cereal, but that's going to push up prices quoted in dollars. And so effectively, it's still like a tax, but it's a tax on everybody who has dollar-denominated assets because now dollar prices for things are going to be higher than they otherwise would have been. And so the dollar's purchasing power is lower. All right, so that's the real answer to John Stewart when he says, why don't we just quantitative ease away a big chunk of the U.S. federal debt? The answer is because that's not actually eliminating the problem. That's just moving it somewhere else. So again, in, in fairness, Honig was basically saying that, but by him talking about liabilities of the government and making it, he made it sound like it was just an accounting trick as if like the Chinese were sitting on a trillion dollars worth of $100 bills and then John Stewart had just said, hey, why don't we just take their $100 bills and give them 250s instead for each one? That'll solve the problem. And you could see like, well, no, we just kind of changed the form of the liability. Well, here I'm saying it's, yes, there's a sense economically in which that's not fixing the problem. And it's just kind of shifting who's going to bear the burden. But economically, I think it is important to point out what's going on here. So it's, there's more of a stealth tax involved that when they, when the Chinese government or whoever it is, Chinese banks and whatever, have treasuries and Americans are being taxed to finance that, it's pretty clear what's going on. Whereas if the Fed just gives them dollars and now prices are rising, it's not as obvious what's going on. Just like right now, you know, people in the Obama or in the Biden administration are blaming Putin for the highest price inflation we've seen in 40 years. All right, so that's what... I think the answer should have been to, to John. And unfortunately, because Honing was so I don't know, slippery in his response, I, well, I don't even want to say slippery. I don't, I don't think he was trying to dodge the question. I think he was answering it 
sincerely in his mind, but because he answered in that way, that gave an opening to the MMT people to come in. And also to the hypocrisy, because Stewart's point was nobody warned about, or he should say not a lot of people didn't, because the Austrians certainly did. You know, during quantitative easing, when the Fed was bailing out these big institutions, that was okay. But now that it comes to, oh, there's the COVID relief and people are getting stimulus checks. And now all these orthodox voices are warning that, whoa, the government can't just be printing all this money. It's going to cause prices to go up. And so Stewart's point was, well, how can we can do quantitative easing to bail out the banks, but not the working people? And again, so I think the consistent answer is, you're right, John, they shouldn't have bailed out the big banks. That wasn't a panacea. That didn't make us richer. But you can, again, so Stewart and then the MMT people that he hit on later were going the other way with it and saying, yeah, since it was okay for us to come up with the trillions for QE, pro, you know, the rounds of QE, it's okay for us to come up with trillions to have a green new deal or to you know fund more stimulus checks or whatever. And if the foreign debt, if the debt US government debt owed to foreigners is a big deal, yeah, let's just quantitative ease our way out of that too. Why not? And, and again, the fundamental problem is because they don't see how the Fed creating money out of thin air through accounting in order to acquire assets is inflationary. They understand the principle that it could be, but they're saying, oh, in practice, you know, we've got some leeway to work with. Whereas, you know, I would stress, even if you don't see CPI go through the roof, it's still a case that if the federal government is acquiring real goods and services through deficit finance, then those goods are not available to the private sector. So one way of looking is what that means is in the alternate timeline when the Fed didn't intervene, maybe CPI would have fallen. So even if in practice, oh, the Fed's, like what happened after 2008, the Fed injected trillions of dollars into the system in base money, you know, through its rounds of quantitative easing, and CPI didn't go through the roof. It's not until, you know, 2021 that we really started seeing CPI pick up. So does that mean, oh, the rounds of QE weren't distortionary or it didn't impoverish dollar holders or people holding dollar-denominated assets, I should say, more accurately. No, it still had that effect. It's just that just because CPI, you know, oh, only went up two to three percentage points per year. Well, again, maybe in the absence of QE, CPI would have gone down three percentage points or something. And so what the Fed did still made the dollar 5% or whatever weaker in a given year than it otherwise would have been. It's just based on the counterfactual, it might not be jumping up that much from its level the year before. Okay, well, I think that's a good place to wrap things up. Thanks everybody for listening. Let me just point you to, if you like this stuff and want to read a more careful exposition, my book, Understanding Money Mechanics from the Mises Institute is where you want to start, where I go through all this stuff. And I'll put a link there. So again, bobmurphyshow.com slash 236 for links to all this stuff. And that book, Understanding Money Mechanics, you get the free PDF you want or you get a very inexpensively priced physical copy too. All right, folks, thanks for your attention and I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.